The Guardian. Welcome back to Guardian Australia's uh, Sydney Siege podcast. I'm Michael Safi. And I'm Helen Davidson, filling in for Bridie Jabour. So, Michael, you were at the inquiry all day today. Can you give us a, an idea of what happened? What was the really big story that came out of today's hearing? Yeah, well, this, today was a strange one. It was sort of like watching your parents fight, except instead of your parents, it was the DPP and the New South Wales Police, these like two big authority figures who generally seem to get along pretty well, but not today, because I think what makes this stage of the inquest very different to the earlier round of hearings we had a few months ago was that back then it was all about um, finding out information. It was about who was Manharon Monis, um, how did he get here, how did he spend the years before the siege. Really, there was nobody to blame, whereas in this case, these are kind of, there are live questions around about, you know, why was Monis out on bail? Um, you know, how was he, how basically was he not behind bars despite all of the kind of heinous things that, that he was being accused of doing? Um, and that's something where probably there is somebody to blame and who that is at the moment, we don't know because we're sort of watching this argument unfold between um, the DPP who claimed that they were never told that uh, Monis may have breached earlier bail conditions and therefore they couldn't tell a magistrate that, you know, he was probably not a guy who should be out on the streets. And the, and the New South Wales uh, police who were saying that, you know, well, our hands are tied. Um, the New Bail Act didn't let us, um, you know, didn't let us make the arguments we wanted to make. And so I think the big story is who, uh, in the end, who is going to be blamed for Manhar and Monis being out on the streets in December 2014. There's a lot of elements in that. How does something like that happen? You know, it's 2015. Um, we're, a, you know, we're a well-resourced police force yeah. authority. How do they not know something like this guy was meant to, was out on bail. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, the main reason is that what we're lacking is this kind of national database where essentially if you commit a crime in WA and then you're out on bail and you come to New South Wales and commit another crime, there's a possibility that the uh, DPP or the police may not know about the fact that you were out on this, that, you know, you had committed this other offence in WA and so they can never tell a magistrate. And so you may be able to be on bail in two states at once, despite having already broken your bail in one place. So that's, that's one factor in this. The second is that the uh, bail laws were changed in New South Wales in 2013, and um, they kind of changed this whole host of presumptions against bail with this test called the unacceptable risk test, where, like, to put it simply, um, you know, a judge would ask, are you an unacceptable risk of sort of fleeing the jurisdiction, of, of tampering with your trial? Um, and if, and you know, if, if, if so, uh, can that be mitigated by bail conditions? And so if both of those things could be, could be fulfilled, you, you were out on the street. And, you know, we heard today um, one of the witnesses, he was a senior detective in, in the New South Wales uh, sex crime squad, squad say that um, police were really unhappy with this change because in their view, it made it much harder for, to put people like Manher on Monus um, you know, behind bars where they belonged. Why was it so hard to put him behind bars when he'd been up on a string of offences? Or, or is this where it comes into the last segment we heard a lot about how he's quite strangely compliant in other yeah, areas? Yeah, well, that's right. So we heard, we heard in the very opening address way, way back when that um, Manharon Monas, for all his kind of oddness, had this strange feature of administrative compliance where, you know, he always filled out his taxes. Whenever he changed address, he'd tell the police. And equally, whenever he was on bail, he would always fulfil his conditions um, to a T. And so whenever he was in front of a judge who, you know, remember, doesn't know that he may have breached, you know, bail before, he comes across as kind of a model bail citizen, you might say. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, does what he needs to do and always turns up to court when he's due. And so he wasn't seen as a particularly uh, big risk to be, to be released. 
So who's blaming who? So the DPP is saying it was the police's fault in this case. Police are saying it was the DPP. Yeah. So look, yesterday, I think if we're going to score it. Yes. And uh, you know, if you've seen the Daily Telegraph front page today, it looks like you know first blood went to the police because the whole story is about how this unnamed solicitor from the DPP had never had never run a bail hearing before. They were painted as um, an amateur, and so that was the reason why uh, Monis got off. Today, you know, it appeared to me that. You know, the lawyers had been, you know, the various lawyers at this inquest had kind of heard or had seen this coverage and were determined to um, rebut it. You know, it seemed to me on some level that this was lawyers kind of getting together to say, hey, you know, you're not going to pin the blame on our profession. This is all about the police. And so... Um, it's getting messy. It, it is. It is getting very messy. Yeah. And, and I mean, there was a really interesting exchange where... Um, Council assisting Jeremy Gormley and uh, Eugene Steck, who's one of the chief, who was this kind of very senior policeman in the um, sex crimes squad. And Steck raised the point that he did tell the DPP that um, Monis had been one of the chief instigators in these protests in Lakemba that followed you know, massive police raids last September. And kind of, you know, it was a bit of a mystery in the media room, but Gormley was really at pains to sort of press Steck on this and say, hold on a second, you say he was an instigator, but did you have any proof of that whatsoever? You know, did you show any proof to the DPP? You know, why did you even mention the fact that um, Monis had been on the street protesting to the DPP? And Steck said, oh, you know, well, look, we didn't really have any evidence um, and we were just trying to throw everything we could at the judge in order to, um, you know, make sure Monis got behind bars. And, you know, it seemed to me what was happening is that Gormley was trying to kind of head off at any attempt by Steck and the police to say, you know, to wash their hands of this and say, hey, we told the DPP everything we could tell them. And it was them who didn't, you know, who didn't successfully argue uh, this case. And so, again, you see this dynamic of, of you know, the buck passing, uh, you, know, you know, people trying to pass the buck between each other. But look, if yesterday was won by the police, I think today was definitely, um, you know, the DPP's day. I think it was the police who came off looking pretty, pretty bad. Um, you know, they were, they were asked, for example, uh, you know, why uh, they were told by the DPP in May 2014 that, Look, you know, it sucks that Monis isn't behind bars, but if you can lay fresh charges, if you can arrest him again, there's a good chance we can have his bail uh, reviewed. Did they arrest him again? They did, right? So they, they well, they, no, they charged him again um, five months later with 37 uh, fresh sexual offences, but they didn't arrest him. Um, and in the stand, uh, the police officer, Denise uh, Viveus, sat there and said that you know, basically, we didn't think it was lawful to arrest him. We, we didn't think that we could. Um, and the lawyer cross-examining her uh, took out this piece of legislation and said, if you look at section, you know, 99 subsection, you know, whatever it was, um, it says pretty plainly that you could have arrested him. She made this point that, um, you know, what, what the police kind of, the way police actually work and what the law says, I mean, obviously they're supposed to line up, but there's always going to be gaps. And apparently what happened is, you know, this gap was just big enough for Manhar and Monis to slip through. Right. So it sounds like there's this really big disconnect between what the legislation allows people to do, but then how that's interpreted by the police, maybe. Yeah, which I think is true of any kind of system. I mean, you're always going to have kind of, in any kind of bureaucracy, really, you'll always have the law and how things should be done. And then the kind of, the, the way in which, you know, human systems always kind of operate and take shortcuts and find ways to sort of, you know, within the constraints of budget and whatever, uh, any other sort of constraints they have to kind of function each day. There's this huge disconnect as well, just between the whole thing of, you know, the community expectations look at this case and say, how could he possibly have been out on bail? But 
there's this massive gap between that and what the law actually allows. Yeah, look, that's what struck me. I mean, I remember when people um, were complaining, particularly people like sort of Ray Hadley and other kind of talkback um, hosts were complaining about the Bail Act. And you know, I must say, given that it was welcomed by academics, by the legal fraternity, a part of me thought, well, you know, this obviously, this obviously makes sense. I mean, this is backed by kind of research and evidence. And then to hear a sort of police officer come out and say that, you know, he thinks that these reforms were the reason why Monis was out on the street, makes you wonder whether these um, reforms, which have now themselves been reformed, whether they were sensible to begin with. That's quite a strong statement to say that if not for these reforms, he might have not been out on yeah. the streets in December. More frighteningly, Ray Hadley may have been right. I mean, this is even, you know. <laughs> so you said today was a good day for the DPP. It was a good day for them, only because, you know, they weren't really on the stand. There was a sort of junior DPP solicitor on the stand. She didn't, you know, she kind of managed to avoid getting too bruised. However, tomorrow it's this uh, unnamed DPP solicitor, this person who was only two months into the job uh, when they were supposed to run the case to uh, see whether Monis would remain on bail in October 2014, two months before the siege. Um, Are they going to be made some kind of a scapegoat here, do you think? I think there's, it's a very real possibility that there'll be an attempt to do that. But I think that the dynamic to watch for will be whether these other lawyers uh, try to protect this solicitor in some way. Because I think that, that, you know, and I could be way off on this, but it just seems to me that there is this very real attempt by the police to say this is the DPP's fault or else this is the fault of the Bail Act. And we've seen sort of on every occasion now, you know, several lawyers in the room step up and try to disassemble that, that reasoning. You'll be back at the inquest hearing all that, so listeners don't forget to come back and you can catch up on how all that went along. Um, you can hear our recap episodes and past ones as well if you want to catch up by going to the iTunes store, searching for Sydney Siege, or you can also listen via your chosen podcasting app or device or going to theguardian.com forward slash au. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.